Welcome to Hallowed, Exploring the Lives of the Saints. Episode 25, The Good Pharisee. I'm your host, Tom Thorne, and in this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey through the lives, adventures, trials, and triumphs of the great heroes of the Christian faith. Today, as we find ourselves in Holy Week of 2023, we'll be talking about a man who risked his name, his career, and perhaps even his life to stand up for Jesus Christ. The Good Pharisee, St. Nicodemus. The Good Pharisee. What does that even mean? Aren't the Pharisees more or less the villains of the Gospels? Well, compared to the subject of our last episode, St. Joseph foster father of our Lord and one of the best-loved heroes of the Christian tradition, Nicodemus the Pharisee may seem an unlikely hero. But as we'll see today, a hero he most certainly was. Everything we know conclusively about Nicodemus comes down to us from the Gospel of John, where he is mentioned three times. First, when he visits Jesus by nights, in John chapter 3. Second, when he stands up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin, in John chapter 7. And third, when he helps arrange for the burial of the crucified Christ, in John chapter 19. Those three passages are all we hear of Nicodemus in the Bible, but they tell us a lot so it's worth exploring each in turn. And yet, before we do, it may be helpful to ask, who were the Pharisees? And why is it so significant that one of them became a saint? Put briefly, the Pharisees were a sect of Jewish intellectuals who wielded great influence around the time of Christ. I say sect because they were one of several schools of Jewish thought, competing with other sects like the aristocratic Sadducees, the ascetic Essenes, and the fanatical Zealots. Looking back from a Christian point of view, there's actually a lot to like about the Pharisees when compared to these other sects. Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees accepted all the books of what we now call the Old Testaments as divinely inspired, and they believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees, on the other hand, only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testaments, and denied the existence of an afterlife. The Essenes, for their parts, also denied the resurrection of the dead, and they wanted no parts of day-to-day -day life among ordinary people, instead cutting themselves off from society in isolated communities in the deserts, almost like monasteries, where they sought perfect purity. And finally, the Zealots. Well, by our modern sensibilities, the Zealots were basically terrorists, agitating for a violent revolution against foreign rule. More about that in a moment. Suffice to say that when we compare them to the Sadducees, the Essenes, and especially the Zealots, the Pharisees actually come across as 
pretty sane and normal from a Christian perspective. They anticipated some of our own beliefs, like the resurrection of the dead, and they took an active interest in the salvation of ordinary people. But why are the Pharisees so important? After all, we don't hear much about the Sadducees and Zealots in the New Testament, and the Essenes aren't mentioned at all, at least not by name. Whereas the Pharisees show up again and again throughout the Gospels as the main antagonists of the story. The group, more responsible than any other, for conspiring to kill Christ. To understand how the Pharisees changed from a sect of popular preachers with proto-Christian views to the villains we know from the Bible, we need to take a step back and take a longer look at their place in Jewish history. The age of Jewish history in which Christ lived on earth is known as the Second Temple Period. The epoch of nearly six centuries from the reconstruction of the Jerusalem Temple on the orders of King Cyrus the Great of Persia in 516 BC to the destruction of that temple, along with most of the city of Jerusalem, by the future Roman Emperor Titus in 70 AD. This Second Temple era saw a great flowering of Jewish culture. It's the time when many of the books of the Old Testament were written down, for instance. But by the later years of the Second Temple era, that is, around the time of Christ, the Jewish people had fallen under foreign domination. The once-independent Kingdom of Judea, whose Hasmonean dynasty had been founded by the Maccabee rebels of the 2nd century BC, about whom you can read in the Bible, that kingdom of Judea fell into chaos in the year 67 BC, following the death of its last queen, Alexandra, whose two sons hated each other and fought a civil war for their late mother's throne. When the war drew to a stalemate without a clear victor, both the sons of Alexandra started to look for outside help. And it just so happened that help was nearby. A general of the Roman Republic, in command of several legions, was just wrapping up a campaign in Syria when he was approached by the Judean princes. The two warring brothers lavished him with gifts, each hoping to win the general's support. The Roman general's name, as you may already know, was Pompey Magnus. Better known to history as the friend, and later rival, of Julius Caesar. Pompey was a wise and cautious man, not known for making rash decisions. And so... While the royal brothers of Judea continued to outdo one another in their quest to flatter him, Pompey simply watched, waited, and bided his time, deliberating on how he could turn the Judean civil war to his own and Rome's 
advantage. Eventually, one of the royal brothers ran out of patience after failing to win Pompey's friendship with a substantial gift of gold. Perhaps suspecting what Pompey was really up to, that is, plotting the conquest of Judea, the prince drew up an army and attacked the Roman general. Always a bad move. Pompey wasn't called Magnus, the Great, for nothing. He easily defeated the upstart prince, who surrendered to his mercy and received it in 63 BC. From there, Pompey laid siege to Jerusalem, captured the holy city for Rome, and set up the royal brother who had not attacked him as a puppet ruler. Pompey did not steal from the Jewish temple, maybe out of his own sense of religiosity for fear of angering the Jewish god, or maybe just to get off to a good start with the people of Judea. But he did, famously, enter its sacred precincts, becoming one of the only Gentiles ever to set foot in the temple's innermost sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, normally off-limits to all but the chief priests. Pompey's treatment of the temple stands in sharp contrast to that of his contemporary, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who would later ransack the wealth of the temple to pay for a disastrous war in Persia. That, I suspect, is the moment when the Jews truly began to hate the Romans, and it's not hard to see why. Although Pompey had treated the Jews and their faith with far more respect than Crassus, he had not come to Judea for their benefits. No, he had come to add another client kingdom to his own list of subordinates, and that is precisely what Judea became after 63 BC a Roman client state. Forever after, the rulers of Judea would be reduced to pawns in the game of Roman politics, with all future contenders for power in Judea appealing to Roman generals, Pompey Magnus, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Octavian, soon to become the Emperor Augustus. It was those last two, Antony and Octavian, who would finally bring the Hasmonean dynasty, which again had been founded by the biblical Maccabees, to its end. After the royal brother, who had been installed as Pompey's puppets, tried to betray the Romans. Antony and Octavian, who at that time were running the Republic together, saw no reason to keep propping up the old dynasty and its backstabbing princes. And so, in 37 BC, Antony and Octavian gave Judea a new puppet king, one you've definitely heard of. I'm referring, of course, to King Herod. Herod the Great, as he's sometimes called by historians, was made king of Judea, but funnily enough, he was not ethnically Jewish. He was actually an Arab, of all things. 
Herod's family were Edomites, a race of Arabs who lived in the desert south of the Dead Sea. According to the book of Genesis, they were descendants of Jacob's hairy brother, Esau. But while many Edomites were pagan, Herod's family had converted to Judaism, and his father had risen to prominence as a government minister and Roman assets in the final years of the Hasmonean dynasty. As king of Judea, Herod kept up the family tradition of placating Rome, drawing his authority from his Roman patrons, most importantly, Octavian, who would soon take absolute power as Caesar Augustus in the final few decades before Christ. Herod ruled like a Roman in many ways, building impressive public works like gymnasia, bathhouses and stadia for chariot racing, and naming several towns in honor of his foreign protectors. When Herod finally died, the kingdom of Judea was split between his three sons, all confusingly enough named Herod in addition to their personal names, each of whom continued to rule as a puppet for their Roman masters. That brings us up through the lifetime of Christ. But what does all this history have to do with the Pharisees? In a word, everything. The background of Judea's foreign dominance is the key to understanding how the Pharisees became what they are in the New Testament. Back in the days of Queen Alexandra, the Pharisees had enjoyed the favor of the royal courts. With cozy government jobs and the protection of the queen herself, these scholar bureaucrats had effectively run Judea. But following Alexandra's death, as new generations of Judean princes vied to kiss up to Rome, the Pharisees found themselves out of luck. They were too narrowly Jewish too loyal to their own religion and culture, to find a place in the new, foreign-dominated order. So what did the Pharisees do? They doubled down, presenting themselves as more Jewish than the kings of the Jews. They became sticklers for the rules and regulations of the old law. They took great pleasure in wagging their fingers at the decadent ways of the Romanizing royalty. While Herod and his sons built splendid palaces and public works to impress their Roman patrons, the Pharisees sneered at the so-called Hellenism, that is, the Greco-Roman civilization, of their rulers, seeing in it nothing more than the corrupting influence of Rome, seducing the Jewish people away from their roots. So the Pharisees carved out a new role for themselves as the moral authorities of Jewish society, even as they found themselves excluded from actual political authority. They appealed directly to the Jewish people, setting themselves up as arbiters of what it meant to be Jewish. And, believe it or not, 
they seem to have become pretty popular for doing so. That's because the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees and Essenes, did not simply abandon the common people of Judea to their fates under foreign rule. The Pharisees actually cared about the moral lives and ultimate salvation of ordinary Jews. And unlike the Zealots, who of course also resisted the Roman occupation, the Pharisees weren't, well, zealots. Instead of being murderous terrorists, the Pharisees presented themselves as the sensible, moderate leaders of opposition to Rome and its Judean royal puppets. And so they won a fairly substantial following among the common people. But as Aristotle could tell you, democratic power corrupts just as easily as any other kind of power. And it wasn't long before the Pharisees had let their status as teachers, preachers, and public moralists get to their heads. It wasn't long, in other words, before they had truly become Pharisees, in our modern sense of the word. Insufferable, self-righteous prigs, obsessively enforcing the letter of the law and then some adding innumerable rules and rituals to govern people's lives that weren't even found in the Old Testaments. These extra regulations, by the way, would eventually be written down in the Talmud, the textual tradition which forms the basis of modern rabbinical Judaism. So by the time of Christ's earthly ministry, around the year 30 AD, the Pharisees had become the dominant influence over the religious and moral lives of most ordinary Jews. And it's clear not only from the New Testaments, but from plenty of other Jewish and Gentile sources from the time, that the Pharisees routinely abused their influence to make life even more burdensome than it already was for the suffering people of Judea. Just think of the many examples we have from Scripture of the people whom Christ came to heal and redeem, but in whom the Pharisees could see only rule-breakers and the ritually impure. The woman caught in adultery, the blind man given sight, and the woman who had been bleeding for twelve years. The Pharisees had no time for them, nor for the man who loved them, as only God can love. That's why the Pharisees, whatever else might be said of them, are the villains of the Gospels. That's why they could not tolerate any threat to their own pedantic moralism. That's why, when they met the Messiah face to face, they cursed him and called for his death. But of all the Pharisees mentioned in Scripture, there is one who stands out as entirely unlike his peers. One who not only listens to what Jesus has to say, 
but accepts him as the Messiah and stands up for him against the intrigues of the other Pharisees. The good Pharisee, Nicodemus. Returning to the three gospel passages I mentioned at the start, I'd like to take a look at each to see what we know about this most unusual Pharisee. In John chapter 3, we read, quote, There was one of the Pharisees, called Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, who came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform the signs that you do unless God were with him. Jesus responds by teaching that, quotes, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, or born again, depending on your translation. Our Lord goes on to explain the importance of baptism, through which we are truly born again of the spirits. And when Nicodemus asks how that is possible, Jesus tells him, quotes, You are the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? In all truth I tell you, we speak only about what we know and witness, only to what we have seen, and yet you people reject our evidence. If you do not believe me when I speak to you about earthly things, how will you believe me when I speak to you about heavenly things? Later in this same passage, Christ makes one of his most famous statements in all the Gospels. Quotes, This is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but so that through him the world might be saved. Whether or not Nicodemus fully grasped the meaning of Christ's words, that the man speaking to him was, in fact, the Son of God himself, the Gospel does not say. But I think this is probably the moment when Nicodemus, who had heard about Jesus' miracles and clearly felt sympathy for him, began to realize who this carpenter from Nazareth truly was. This story shows us Nicodemus' humility, his willingness to learn from a teacher who clearly comes from God, even if he did not hold the academic credentials that a Pharisee would typically expect of a rabbi. Nicodemus was, of course, a highly educated man. And yet he, unlike the vast majority of his pharisaical peers, submitted himself to learn from a man whom many would have deemed beneath him. Moving on, in John chapter 7, Jesus travels to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot, the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles in which the people of Israel would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and dwell there in tents for a week, 
to remember the exodus from Egypt and the wandering of their ancestors through the deserts on the way to the Promised Land. While he is in Jerusalem for the festival, Jesus goes up to the temple to teach, where he reminds his fellow Jews that there is a deeper meaning behind the commandments, beyond the superficial obedience of rules. Quotes, Do not keep judging according to appearances. Let your judgments be according to what is right. While some in the crowd are offended by his words, there are many others who believe him. And when the Pharisees learn of his following, they send the temple guards to arrest him. But the guards, too, are convinced by his teachings, and they return to the Pharisees empty-handed. Reading directly from John, quote, So, the Pharisees answered, You too have been led astray? Have any of the authorities come to believe in him? Any of the Pharisees? This rabble knows nothing about the law. They are damned. One of them, Nicodemus, the same man who had come to Jesus earlier, said to them, But surely our law does not allow us to pass a judgment on anyone without first giving him a hearing and discovering what he is doing. To this they answered, Are you a Galilean too? Go into the matter and see for yourself. Prophets do not arise in Galilee. They all went home. Here we see Nicodemus not only believing in Jesus, but risking his own reputation to defend him against the pharisaical conspirators who would have him arrested for teaching the true meaning of the law. Keep in mind that Nicodemus was the closest thing to an academic or public intellectual in his time. His reputation was everything. Prestige was the economy of the Pharisees. How many academics today, I wonder, would stand up for the truth if they knew it might cost them their tenure? Finally, in John chapter 19, after the Pharisees eventually succeed in their plot to murder the Messiah, we hear about Nicodemus one more time when he works to arrange a tomb for the crucified Christ with the help of a wealthy man named St. Joseph of Arimathea. No relation to St. Joseph of Nazareth, the foster father of our Lord. Reading again from the Gospel of John, quotes, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because he was afraid of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him remove the body of Jesus. Pilate gave permission, so they came and took it away. Nicodemus came as well, the same one who had first come to Jesus at nighttime, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, weighing about a hundred pounds. They took the body of Jesus 
and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, following the Jewish burial custom. At the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden, and in his garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been buried. Since it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was ready, they laid Jesus there. It's worth noting, by the way, that St. John's Gospel uses the term Jews to refer to the Pharisees and other religious leaders who conspired to crucify Christ. He is not referring to the Jewish people as a whole. While it doesn't always sit well with modern readers, we can't attribute this rather confusing choice of words to anti-Semitism. After all, St. John himself was Jewish, along with all of Christ's other disciples. Not to mention, he was an author of the inspired word of God, the same God of Israel, who named the Jewish people his chosen, and did not abandon them. In any events, this final scene shows us that Nicodemus, the same man who had met with Jesus, heard his teachings, and defended him against the other Pharisees, remained loyal to the Messiah, even after his crucifixion. Ensuring that our Lord received a proper Jewish burial, and indeed, not just any burial, but a burial fit for a king. A hundred pounds of myrrh and spices would have cost an enormous sum of money. So it's likely that Nicodemus gave up much, if not all, of his own wealth to provide for the burial of Christ. From there we read nothing more about Nicodemus. Not in the Bible, at any rate. But according to the traditions of the early church, fully in keeping with what we learn in Scripture, Nicodemus became a Christian, and remained one for the rest of his days. In addition to being venerated as a saint throughout the history of the church, Nicodemus was also considered the author of an important work of early Christian Apocrypha, a text related to, but not a part of, the canonical Bible. This apocryphal text, known as the Gospel of Nicodemus, gives an account of Christ's journey into the depths of the underworld to free the holy souls who had died before him. The souls of the Old Testament heroes, including the repentant Adam and Eve, to Christians, this journey is known as the harrowing of hell, and we remember it every time we say the Apostles' Creed. That's what we mean when we say, He descended into hell. While we can't be sure if Nicodemus actually wrote this text, and most scholars today think it was written in its current form in the 5th century AD, about 400 years after his lifetime, it was, all the same, a major influence 
on ancient and medieval Christianity, providing generations of artists and writers with an image of what transpired between Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. Saint Nicodemus is commemorated on the 31st of August in the Catholic Church and on the third Sunday after Easter in Eastern Orthodoxy, known as the Sunday of the Myrrh-Bearers. He is considered the patron of curiosity, though I think we could also extend his patronage to scholars, teachers, academics, intellectuals, and all those who seek the truth. If you'd like to learn more about St. Nicodemus and the world in which he lived, and foster your own devotion to this remarkable Pharisee, then you will find links in the show notes to prayers and other resources. There you'll also find a link to our Patreon, where you can support the show. May St. Nicodemus, the good Pharisee, come to our aid now and always, for the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening, and God bless. A very beautiful Triduum and Easter to you all.